This is Lex, and welcome to Signal, a podcast powered by Consensus, where we will be sharing the most captivating stories and interviews from Ethereum insiders. In this episode, we're very excited to host Camilla Russo, founder of The Defiant and author of The Infinite Machine. I am so excited about our conversation today on the podcast. I have with us today Camilla, who is the founder of The Defiant. Welcome to the conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Excited too. It's uh, it's an absolute pleasure. You're one of the earliest thinkers and writers to the space. And of course, you've built up an amazing media project, which is now um, a business. And uh, you've also written a book about Ethereum that goes into the detail of the founding of the space and all the pieces around it. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking through each of those and really weaving through the threads that bind those together. But before we hop into uh, the meat of the conversation, can you tell us a little bit about your your background, how you got started in the space, and the types of things that that pulled you towards the innovation ecosystem? Sure. So my background, first thing, I'm a journalist. I'm originally from Santiago, Chile. I studied journalism there and started my career at one of the biggest newspapers in Chile, El Mercurio. But I quickly kind of grew a little bit tired of being in a small country and and a small kind of media company from kind of the global perspective. And so I applied to different journalism schools in the U.S. with the goal of later working at a big U.S.-based media company. So I got accepted into Northwestern University and did a master's in journalism there at Northwestern Smithfield School of Journalism. It was a great experience, and it's where I first became interested in financial journalism. You know, I went into journalism because I like writing and like stories and history. Uh, I never thought I'd be ever interested in something to do with markets or numbers or anything related to that. But at, you know, at Northwestern, I, I took this one financial journalism class and I, I saw how powerful it was to just tell the story from the market lens. And since then, I that's kind of like how I've come at the different stories and like the coverage I've, I've done. And so, yeah, from, from there, uh, I, I applied for the Bloomberg News Internship in New York, got accepted to that, and then got hired um, at Bloomberg uh, right after the internship and started in the emerging markets team in New York. And... From there, I spent the next eight years at Bloomberg covering markets in New York, then in Argentina, then in Spain, and then back in New York. And it was kind of in Argentina where I wrote about Bitcoin for the first time. And then the last two years in New York was where I really kind of, I guess, like specialized in it and um, made it more of like my day-to-day uh, job. To cover the space this was during like the 2017 2018 bubble and crash and what it's what a time uh what a special time that was mm-hmm. before kind of hopping into the rabbit hole you know financial markets what do you think is a financial market 
why did you find them interesting? And why did you find the storytelling about financial markets compelling? Like, what, what did that represent for you? So, okay, so financial markets are wherever securities and assets are, are being traded. Um, I think it's kind of like a, a very broad definition. Um, and those assets can be anything from you know, stocks to bonds, currencies and cryptocurrencies. And I think for me, why I thought it was interesting to tell a story from uh, like the money perspective, because I thought it was like a, a more objective way of looking at reality. Like when you're a politics writer, you report on what different sides are saying. Um, so it's like one person's word against the other or like their policies. But when you look at, at stories from a market perspective, it's like thousands of participants' views are encapsulated in one single number. Like when a company's stock is going up and down or a country's bond is going up and down, that's a reflection of thousands of market participants buying and selling to come up with that price and come up with that trend. So when I'm writing about Argentine bond yields and how investors are pricing in 25% yields in Argentina versus 5% bond yields in Chile. It's like one thing to say, oh, like Chile's policies are seen as safer for investment or like for growth. And the other thing is to say, well, this is what people are actually pricing the risk at. So to me, it's just a, a more objective way of, of looking at reality, looking at markets. So I think there's a profound insight that might echo, which is that there is a quantitative aspect to the world, and that quantitative aspect is created by the participation of uh, many people together in some sort of venue where they intermediate their exchange, their values based on buying and selling, based on negotiation. And when you scale that up to be really big, the way that you have in the bonds or the equities markets, you're getting to to some sort of humanity level consensus about some particular topic. So that leads me into, okay, 2017, 2018, covering the crypto space. What was that like at the time? Yeah, so it was just fascinating and, and so exciting to be covering crypto in, in 2017. And I was lucky to be able to to do that. Like, like I said, um, I had first written about Bitcoin in, in 2013 when, when I was in Argentina. And this was like just a single story I wrote during my time in Argentina. And I was there for four and a half years covering kind of the market there, bonds, currency control, inflation, a bond default, like all the craziness that was going on in Argentina. And amid that coverage, I saw that Argentines were buying Bitcoin to protect against inflation and currency controls. And so that to me was just, was so interesting. Like I, I saw, okay, there's this independent internet money that isn't influenced by central banks or financial institutions. And I was kind of like hooked on the space since then. And then when I was back in New York, I went to New York with Bloomberg to join their Markets Live team, which was a, it's a small team of kind of long-time reporters and even asset managers like blogging about 
the market, like macro markets real time. So we really had the freedom to write about whatever was interesting to us. And so I, I was usually writing about emerging markets, but then 2017, obviously, you know, things started heating up in crypto and there was all these ICOs happening and like speculation about a Bitcoin ETF. So I was writing about all of that in the Markets Live blog, which is a product kind of inside the Bloomberg terminal. But then there was just so much demand for Bitcoin content, like anything on the terminal that had Bitcoin on the headline would instantly be the most read story. So my editors asked me to just, you know, cover cryptocurrencies for like just the broader Bloomberg news, not just for the blog. So it really kind of became my second job at Bloomberg. I, I loved it. Like I, I, I think in Argentina, I became very used to covering like very crazy volatile markets. So I already had kind of that training and the currency was even, even crazier than in Argentina. After that, like I, I really never stopped uh, writing about the space. It's just to me, like in 2017, it didn't feel as mature as it does now, but I could, I could still see that this was something important happening, you know, that it was worth kind of sticking around and, and just following the space. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting to hear the your experiences just because they so clearly add up to where you are now, right, with exposure to the really volatile markets in Argentina and the value of a currency that doesn't deflate away. You know, for me, I had experience in the Russian hyperinflation of the early 90s. That was something I grew up with. And so it sticks in my memory along with the Lehman Brothers collapse. And I think a lot of people in our, in our space have some personal touch point that connects them to it. And I, you know, I, I definitely remember the 2017 ICO publishing interest and, and traffic and making the charts of, you know, how many ICOs, which month and how much people raised. And it was a really exciting time. I want to just as early as possible, talk about your book and kind of the community that you've discovered with Ethereum. You know, when in your coverage, did you realize Ethereum versus Bitcoin, or maybe not versus, but Ethereum adjacent to Bitcoin and that, you know, you had this book in you? I think at the end of 2017, I really thought, you know, something important happened, like this explosion that we witnessed in the cryptocurrency in 2017 was just crazy. And like the billions being poured into ICOs and the Ethereum and Bitcoin skyrocketing many times over uh, their price at the start of the year and, and just everyone talking about it. And, you know, it, it just seemed like it was something worth documenting in a more permanent way. And I guess like as context, I always was on the lookout for a book idea. Like writing a book has been one of the things I had always wanted to do since I went into journalism. And so I was always kind of looking for where my book would come from. And covering crypto, I felt for the first time that this was a space where I could contribute something to. Because in Argentina, I was also kind of like on the lookout for a book idea. But because I just didn't feel that it was kind of my place to write a book on something on Argentina. Maybe it was, I don't know, like maybe I shouldn't have felt that way. I don't know, but it just seemed like there were so many other more kind of veteran reporters who had spent decades covering Argentina or like who were actually Argentine. And I don't know, I just felt like a lot more of, of an outsider. But in cryptos, since the whole space is new, like it hasn't been around for decades and much less like 
reporters covering it. So it just felt like a space that was new enough that nobody had really claimed a stake there and say, you know, I'm kind of the expert in the field and I should be the one to write the story. So like thinking of it from like a startup perspective, like I did feel I had the right to win in in writing a book. And so that's kind of the first step. Like, okay, like I first thing is feeling, okay, this is a space that I can write a book in. I do have something valuable to say. Like I've been covering it at one of the main financial media companies. And then the next thing was why Ethereum? And I I started kind of thinking about what the biggest, most interesting story was to tell. And of course, like Bitcoin is the, the first thing that you would think of. But that story had been told very well before with digital gold and other books had been already been written about Bitcoin. People kind of knew the story a lot better than for Ethereum. And so Ethereum is the second biggest blockchain by market cap, and it had fueled so much of the craziness that was going on in 2017 with ICOs and just like fundamentally, it did feel like a development, like a step forward from Bitcoin. Okay, this was the first smart contract blockchain. It's trying to push the boundaries of what distributed ledger tech can do. So even if like Ethereum didn't end up succeeding and, and winning and becoming kind of the world computer, it was still worth telling the story because it had already made history. Like it, it had already pushed the boundaries of blockchain. It had already fueled the fire of like the 2017 cryptocurrency bubble so i thought okay yeah there's a book here and incredibly nobody had really told the story behind ethereum like story of how ethereum was created from like the people perspective the technical story you can find it online but you couldn't really find the people story anywhere so that's what i i set out to do that is really important to to any of this stuff because I feel like people like to talk in the abstract about blockchain and you know frameworks and mental models and we sometimes like to talk about financial infrastructure and permissionless this and that but end of the day you still anchor to individuals that are driving this stuff forward and your your story has to have the narrative of the people who are bringing it together and I want to kind of weave it back to this concept of community how did you see the original ethereum community come together and then if we fast forward to decentralized finance in 2020 on the other side of crypto winter, when again, it's, you know, it's dire and difficult and the world is dark and nobody cares. How did you see the DeFi community come together? And maybe if you could just, you know, put them side by side to each other. And if you see any similarities about how these communities form and, and any other insights you have from being so close to it. Sure. I, I think, well, first thing is I didn't really see the initial Ethereum community come together firsthand. Like this was back in 2013, 2014. And so I got that from just like my interviews of people who were at this at the time around. I did see the DeFi community come together during crypto winter. So I guess kind of my view of the, the initial Ethereum community comes secondhand from interviews. So that community, the way it formed was from, I think, Bitcoin first. Of course, at the time, the almost the only thing uh, around in cryptocurrency was Bitcoin, like crypto equaled Bitcoin in 2012. And that's where Vitalik 
came from. He was a very well-known and enthusiastic Bitcoiner. He wrote for different Bitcoin blogs and went to collaborate with different Bitcoin projects like Colored Coins and, and Mastercoin. And from his participation in the Bitcoin community is that he came up with the idea of Ethereum. There was this movement, Bitcoin 2.0, which wanted to build features on top of Bitcoin. And so Vitalik came up with the idea of why not create a blockchain that allows anyone to create any application instead of creating the specific applications on top of Bitcoin. Let's create a generalized blockchain. And this idea, which to him like seemed very obvious, he thought like, there must be a reason why this this hasn't been done. Maybe it just can't be done. But he came up with kind of like a very rough concept, a white paper, even kind of ideas for like the first DAFs that could live in, in this blockchain. And I, I wrote a, a story on, on this and DAFs at Vitalik List in, in, the, in the first white paper. It's pretty much mapping out uh, DeFi today. Uh, it's just really interesting. But anyway, so this still Ethereum community really sprung from the Bitcoiner community, people around Vitalik who believed in his idea and, and wanted to follow him and make this dream a reality. So it was people who believed that they, they could do something kind of crazy like this because Vitalik also showed this white paper to whoever was close and whoever he respected. And some people came on board and others said, this is way too complicated. It's so complicated that it introduces safety risks. And so they, they didn't want to like follow him along. So I think the initial Ethereum community were kind of the more adventurous Bitcoiners around Vitalik at the time. And they coalesced in Skype groups. For some reason, Skype was kind of the main way they communicated. And they, you know, started kind of talking there and then met up in Miami at a Bitcoin conference where they announced Ethereum and kind of the rest went from there. So I think the Ethereum community in 2018 era and on, they didn't necessarily come from Bitcoin in the way that the initial Ethereum community did. Some developers came from Ethereum first. Some had looked at Bitcoin before and thought it wasn't very interesting because they weren't inspired by the like hard money aspect that draws Bitcoiners in. When they looked at Ethereum, they came to Ethereum from just like the technical aspect of, oh wow, like I can build stuff on top of this platform. And so you have people that come to Ethereum and join the community because of the tech first and not because of the ideology. And so I think that that starts to kind of shape the Ethereum community. And so you see a, a, a little bit more of a diverse community on Ethereum than on Bitcoin, at least from my perspective, I found. And you also have developers who are were disappointed with, with their experience on Bitcoin, you know, that they had tried to build their projects on Bitcoin and found that it was impossible to do. So they came over to Ethereum. Like Joey Krug is, is a great example of that. Like he had tried to build Augur on Bitcoin first, but it didn't work out. So he tried it on Ethereum. So I think that's how kind of the, the current Ethereum community has developed or, or emerged from uh, hackers who, who want to build cool, cool stuff, <laughs> basically. Yeah, it's a really interesting evolution because the first one is like deep crypto, probably a lot of Bitcoin maximalists looking to expand what's possible at the protocol layer. And then 
Ethereum has gotten so sticky, you know, and there's so many projects that are trying to still compete with Ethereum as the core layer, as layer one. And they're running into this problem of the independent developers that are trying to build apps from scratch in 2021 on programmable blockchains, they're really hard to pull away. And at the same time around DeFi, you've you've now had people who've been through the market cycle of 2018, 2019, 2020, when it was unpopular to have chosen this career and this sector, who've emerged with multi-billion dollar protocols and who've really figured out how to work together and, and how to move very quickly. And so it it seems to me that sort of the the location of the game continues to to move forward really really quickly. And today, when we're recording, Beeple sold in a Christie's auction for I believe sixty nine million dollars an NFT of his collected digital works. And there's now a, another movement around crypto art, non-fungible tokens, music, and creators more broadly. And so I want to use that as an excuse to ask you to think about how you're now seeing media and the creative industries moving into the space, and then maybe connect that to the Defiant and how, as a creative, as a as a writer, how you're thinking about this next generation of, you know, sort of like the, the media industry and business model on blockchains as well. So it's been really interesting to see what's happening with NFTs and digital art, because it really is bringing a new wave of users onto Ethereum and onto blockchains. I think with DeFi and with ICOs and, and just crypto in general, before NFTs, I think you can have a before and after the NFT craze of 2021. So before this boom, the main people who were coming to crypto were interested in trading, like interested in crypto for the the financial perspective, the hedge against their currency, their digital gold, yield farming, putting money in ICOs. All of the previous crypto booms were surrounding just just trading and investing so nfts is drawing a very different crowd they are creators and artists and so maybe you know people who had looked at blockchain before and kind of read the headlines of bitcoin to the moon that didn't seem very interesting to them or that didn't kind of like get the value across like why blockchain is actually important and actually valuable but now when they see an nft and they can apply it to their own work and realize okay like now i see that this is a way to monetize my work i can attach my art to this digital token or this digital program and it can prove ownership in a way that has never been done before. Before, maybe a song writer, I don't know, a band would put their their stuff on YouTube and it would get reproduced a million times and they wouldn't see a dollar out of that. Now that they can attach that song to an NFT and fans can buy that and, and be excited to be the first one to own it or among the first group to own this band's NFT, now that they can actually monetize their work. And it's the first time that they've been able to do that and it just drives the point across of why digital value and digital ownership 
is so important like it, it is revolutionary so last year you know I, I heard people say nfts is how crypto becomes mainstream i don't know if i like really kind of believe that because it, it seemed like okay like crypto bonds i don't know like I, but but it really is coming true like there's a whole new wave of, of users that are excited about crypto for the first time because of nfts and so there's this new community uh farming for sure it's just it's amazing that like you can be so deep in this space and devote a hundred percent of your time to it and then one day wake up and be completely surprised by how enormously adopted and popular it is in some particular aspect you know like i remember you know so for me like this thesis around DeFi as the financial manufacturing revolution that will replace fintech in a way that fintech was never able to do i think it became clear around 1819 that that was happening and that was it was a possibility but like there's seeing that become just like 50 billion overnight of us dollars is you know blows your mind and then similarly for the stuff that's coming out either of on the music side of like three lao or kings of leon or this this people sale it's like you i'm in this space every single day and it still just like blows my mind how powerful it is for people I think one of the unique experiences, however, when you do remove all that industry value chain, when you do say, we're going to connect the user or the recipient directly to the person or company doing the issuance, whether it's your your token or whether it's your art or whether it's your music or whether it's your content, there's a much more direct relationship between the user and the object. And that also comes with some weird outcomes, strange outcomes and difficult to manage things. You know, So for a lot of projects that issued tokens and the tokens went down in value, it was really hard to have essentially an angry community of token holders who lost money. And that was really difficult to navigate. And now we're sort of on the flip side where, you know, I'm sure creators who are generating wealth or high quality information like the Defiant does about the space, which leads people to to find alpha and and do well, you know, they, they start to form like these relationships to, to brands and to people in a way that's somewhat novel and also really quickly. And so, you know, going back to what you do with the Defiant and then like your personal journey through the space as you get more of a profile and as you become, you know, in the center of the network, what has that experience been like to relate to people who have that direct relationship with you and they're sort of like attributing qualities to you or the brand that you're like, where, you know, where did that come from? Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely been interesting. Let's see, like the Defiant started as a Substack newsletter in June of 2019. And this was at a time when if you were in the space, you definitely knew about DeFi and you knew it, it was just groundbreaking, but it wasn't as a sure thing as I think it is now that, okay, like this is here to stay. But I just thought, you know, there's something real here, like there's actual value being created, protocols are working, they have real users, they are transacting real money, and nobody is really covering the space very well in, you know, traditional media, of course, wasn't paying attention, crypto media wasn't even covering it very well or very often. At the time, there wasn't any DeFi focused newsletters, like the Defiant was the first one. And so I thought there's an opportunity here to kind of lead the DeFi content. But I still thought, you know, this would 
just be a side project like this is going to be a newsletter that I do in the evenings and that my main job would be to be a freelance journalist writing about tech and finance like that was my my plan when I left Bloomberg 2019 in like January I left to finish my book but also because I wanted to be an independent journalist and write for magazines and write kind of big research pieces and that, that sort of thing but I was really kind of like fascinated by DeFi and, and wanted to kind of have an excuse to just cover it and write about it day to day so that was kind of how the defiance started and just sending the first few emails was just extremely frightening to me and, and just thrilling because up until that point, I had had the Bloomberg name to protect me for the past eight years. So, you know, I turned in stories and and like three different editors uh, looked at them and they were vetted and they were like bulletproof. And if anything happened, it was still kind of a Bloomberg story. And, you know, I didn't have to kind of like deal so directly with my readers and the good and bad that comes from that. I didn't get kind of as much praise for the work because it's kind of like expected that a Bloomberg story will kind of do the job and I didn't I was also protected from any criticism or, or backlash because whatever like it was a huge company behind me so it, it, that was scary to do to be just like on my own like I was deciding what what to write nobody was editing and readers could come to me directly and it was like my name my brand so that was very scary but I quickly found it was incredibly gratifying. I don't know, it's, it's a feeling that I hadn't had since, I think kind of maybe the very early stories I, I published at Bloomberg. It was just having kind of my own way to communicate with, with readers. started becoming, I don't know, a little bit addicting, you know, like I, I, I really liked having that very close-knit uh, community, like having people who were uh, receiving my newsletter and kind of my words directly in their inbox every day. So instead of a side project, The Defined really became my full-time job. Like as, as soon as I finished my book, I had kind of that decision to make. Um, like, am I going to go all in on The Defiant or will I pursue kind of this independent journalism route? And from kind of all the feedback and growth that Defiant had in, in just a couple of months, it, it really became clear that there was a need for high quality and actual like professional journalism about DeFi. Still today, like very few people are doing that. So I thought, okay, it's an opportunity. People need this. And so I, I decided to just go all in on the Defiant. And I'm really happy I made that decision. I'm, I'm so proud of how the Defiant has grown. That's awesome. Congratulations on taking both the jump and the adventure and the outcome that you've achieved. It's really a fantastic resource for everyone listening to keep up to speed with the space and also to sort of filter the the reel from the spin. There's a ton of spin in our space. Everybody sort of conflated financial outcomes with marketing and with often trying to, to create a narrative about something that's not necessarily true. And I think the crypto and the DeFi space in many ways is still very much caveat emptor. And that's, you know, that's sort of the, the libertarian ethos, the liberation as well as the danger. To close us out, can you tell me a little bit, what is your filter? How do you separate 
the things that are real, that are worth the attention, that are worth the coverage, the people who are real and with whom it, it's worthwhile to maintain the network versus I'm sure you're inundated with all sorts of stuff. How do you filter the real from the false? And I think that that's very helpful advice to a lot of people who are just starting to interact with the space now. So I think first thing to say there is the first filter is just having like really high standards for the defiant. And by that, I mean, editorial content is editorial content. It's not marketing, it's not paid for. And I think that's important to say because of the level of requests for placed content and for paid editorial content, like how much does it cost for you to write about my project in your newsletter? I know that it's happening in the space that people are passing off content when it's actually marketing and you can actually, you know, start to see it in other um, publications. And I think that's very dangerous. You're actually deceiving readers when you do that. So the first thing is at the Defiant, there is a clear division between what is editorial content and articles in the newsletter and website and podcasts like my podcast guests they don't pay to be on the podcast either and what is sponsorships like my sponsors are at the top of the newsletter they are kind of regular ads if i have a sponsored post that's written by the brand it's not written by me so there's kind of like a clear separation between what's marketing and what's kind of actual editorial content and then how do I filter what should be editorial content and I think it's like it, it just comes from from experience to to be able to tell what's like a, an important or like a real project but I think like it, it really helps that we are guided by by facts and I mean that, that seems obvious but we write about things that actually happen so it's different to get a pitch from a project being like, we are the the first and most scalable blockchain that's ever, you know, lived. And we are going to transform payments in emerging markets. And we are going to do this and that. Okay, like anyone can put those promises on like a press release. But we cover like things that are launching, things that have attracted, I don't know how many millions in a, a few weeks or that have a certain number of users. We write about things that are happening. And I think that's, that's a, a great way to write about things that are real. So it's not like we will never cover something that isn't live and has users. We, we might kind of link to it or do like a short summary because that's still kind of content that my readers want. Like they, they are on the lookout for new projects, but we, we won't spend kind of our real estate on, on things that are just promises. So I think that's kind of a good way to filter. And then the other way is, is more subjective. It's more like just watching actual organic excitement for a project. It's a good barometer. Like if I see several kind of people talking about this thing that happened or or like a lot of engagement on like Twitter or Reddit. And you get to a point where you can tell whether, oh, this is just their own marketing and, and bots or like whether this is actual engagement. So I think that's a bit harder to do if kind of we are picking up these signals and we see like people on different channels and just like separately talking about something. 
then that's also a good a good sign that we should be covering it. Absolutely. There is reality and there are facts and things actually happen in that reality. And it is not just all Twitter bots swirling around in chaos. And so I definitely agree with you that you do need judgment, but there is a there there. Thank you for sharing your insights. I want to recommend that everybody check out The Infinite Machine on Amazon and of course, subscribe to the Defiant, anywhere else that our listeners should find you and connect with you? Well, I think Twitter is the best way to connect with me. I'm at Cami Russo. The other thing I wanted to do a shout out to this new project that I started with Lee Quinn. We're doing a magazine for women in tech and finance, and we have a Gitcoin grant up. So if, if you want to help us get this project off the ground, uh, go to our Gitcoin grant. It's Des Fems, so that's another way to support. But yeah, the Defiance and the Infinite Machine, go check them out. <laughs> awesome. We'll put the links in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for spending the time here. No, thank you. This was this was really fun. A big thank you to our listeners for joining today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Keep the conversation going by following us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Discord, all at Consensus. Reach out, ask questions, and suggest who you'd like to see featured in future episodes. To learn more about the topics discussed today, see our blog at consensus.net slash blog and subscribe to our weekly Signal newsletter. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.